um, I think it's probably safe to say that most of us know what it's like to be in a rut. Anybody in here ever been in a rut? Okay, good. Not just me, because I've been in many of them. We get in work ruts, right? We get in diet ruts or health ruts of some kind, relationship ruts. We certainly get into our spiritual ruts. And often when we're in one, you know, we're not initially aware, are we? Very often we're not. If and when we do realize we're in a rut, getting out can feel nearly impossible. And it can simply become our new normal, I think. I suppose that's what really makes it a rut, right? I once heard a saying, a rut is just a grave with the ends kicked out. You ever heard that? I had to look it up. I was like, who said this? I remember this. I looked it up, and it's a quote that's attributed to an early 20th century evangelist named Vance Havner. You ever heard that name? You have. All right. This guy was licensed to preach at age 12 and ordained at age 15. Maybe he was just like born reading the newspaper or something. Like he was just ahead of all of us, you know. And I don't know how I feel about an ordained 15-year-old or a preaching 12-year-old. I don't know if that's a good idea, but that's a pretty good quote, right? A rut is just a grave with the ends kicked out. Ruts tend to have an emotional component. So, you know, they may not feel like a grave per se, but if we're honest, we might admit that we get in them when something feels like it has died, so to speak. A passion or a focus maybe a willingness. Maybe we find ourselves, you know, those get replaced by a kind of indifference or, you know, a malaise, boredom, or just a feeling of helplessness has kind of moved in. We're just here, and this is what it is and what it's going to be. And then the question then becomes for us, how do we get out of a rut? Or better yet, how do we actually avoid getting into one? And I think there's really only one answer. We need help. We need help. Very often we need external motivation to get out of the rut, which usually begins with identifying that we're in one. We need help, you know, avoiding them as well. We need help paying attention. We need help, I do, confronting reality and saying this is what it is. Or actually being willing to be confronted by reality. Things aren't going well. And I think this is one way of actually describing a thematic thread that runs through our scripture readings today. I want to speak to all of them, um, but mostly to to Malachi. There's this potential for or the presence of a rut, especially in Malachi. In in, in this, this prophecy, Israel is in this rut, and I want to come back to that. But in the second letter to the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul sees the potential influence of idleness in the fellowship that could lead them into something like a rut, or lead them astray. There are folks among them for whom that bumper sticker might apply. Maybe you've seen it. It reads, Jesus is coming back. Anybody know it? Look busy. You ever seen that one? (laughs) Jesus is coming back. Look busy. It's cynical, sarcastic, right? But this is why Paul says in verse 6, to avoid anyone peripateo ataktos. It's a word picture. They're just walking around irregularly, disruptively. They're out of step with the overall purpose. And you probably have experience with someone like this, maybe in the workplace or in your family, somebody who kind of hovers above the focus of what's going on or the tasks at hand, and they're kind of distracting others, maybe pointing out what's wrong all the time, stirring everybody up, 
angling, getting in people's heads. And they're not diligent, they're not dedicated, not really invested, not motivated, but there, painfully there. And I say that graciously, but they're there. In my early 20s, I managed a, uh, co-managed a Timberland store, and we had two people who were painfully like this, two co-workers. One was actually a floor manager. So they'd fold a few shirts, they might organize a rack or two, but what they really wanted was to stir up drama and get paid for it. You ever known anybody like that? You ever been anybody like that? <laughs> Same thing when I worked as an analyst at a software company. A particular co-workers you know, would float like a bumblebee from cubicle to cubicle, distracting people with conjecture about what management was up to or what they were doing wrong. Busybody. And in verse 12, how does, Paul, how does Paul handle it? He commands and encourages, challenges and supports, as we talk about, those very people to do what? To work quietly and literally to eat their own bread. In other words, stop it. Just stop it. Stop being a distraction and a drain on the community who Paul says should stay focused. They're, they're, he, he's encouraging them to stay focused on the mission and on doing good, literally, he says. If this busybody stuff kind of redoubles, it can keep everyone pointed just one degree off over time and over distance in what happens. A significant drift can occur and they can find themselves in a rut. We, we all know that this happens to churches, to church communities, even all like denominational leadership, if we're honest, that kind of find themselves on the downward half of a bell curve wondering, how did we get here? How will we get out? Or maybe worse, they're convinced that this new path isn't a problem. Some of you have been part of that. As Paul says, they are our brothers and sisters, more on the corporate end of that. They're not our enemies, but it's a shame, isn't it? So Paul's warning is well taken for us, both individually as a local church and really for the church at large. Here in the first few verses, let's just move to our gospel for a minute. In Luke 21, Jesus is actually turning the volume up to 11 with a call to vigilance and a warning that distortions in the message are going to come. Posers are going to arise and they will be compelling in their own right. Just expect that, he's saying in there, and pay attention. Don't sleep on the urgency of the message. And by the way, expect that it's going to be difficult. It is going to be contested. And in verses 8 and 9, the message is clear. See to it that you aren't led astray. Don't get passive. Don't be afraid. And expect a delay. What can happen in the interim? In verses 10 and following, Jesus prepares them for some upheaval that is going to happen in their very generation, just a few decades, including the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And they're going to be intimidated. They're going to be interrogated. And the cost of following him is actually going to increase exponentially. But he says, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But in the course of endurance, there are going to be lots of potential distractions and ruts. So again, I think the common thread for today could be described as a warning about these kinds of things, the pitfalls, and I'm calling them the ruts, spiritual, relational. These can come from distraction, and they can come from delay, which I think compound one another. Think about it. The longer things kind of play out, the greater risk of getting distracted. 
of getting off by just a degree. But the more distracted you become, if you think about it, the more difficult it is to endure. They work against each other. And this is what we see in Israel in the time of Malachi, the prophet who is their wake-up call to this stuff that has gone on. Malachi is the rut revealer, let's call him. And it happens in a kind of dialogue on God's behalf with Israel's priesthood. We see this dialogue. Let me give you some brief background to where they find themselves. And it will make a little more sense, I think. Scholars are pretty uh, unified that this prophecy actually comes during the Persian Empire. It's probably around, you know, the early... uh, 420s BC, probably right in there, and it's possibly overlapping with Nehemiah's final chapter. If you go and read that, where he's reprimanding them for some of these same problems, pointing them out. So they're getting this in stereo. They're getting it in stereo. They have just been through the 70-year Babylonian exile. It's long over, actually, though, and um, they had this initial season of insecurity. Is this going to last? What's going on? But now that has passed as well for those who've returned, and new generation has arisen. All right, so this feels like maybe the status quo, and we know that what's true is they have established themselves. We know from Haggai and from Zechariah, they've rebuilt their society. Things are going pretty well. They've established infrastructure. There are now markets. There's agriculture. They have their own police. And they're in a pattern of religious observances in the rebuilt temple. Men like Ezra, men like Nehemiah, they've helped to reestablish Israel in what we could probably just call maybe a a sort of a third-rate power, but it's better than the alternative, better than being in captivity or in exile, because what's happening is there's this era of strong Gentile empires that are, they're sweeping like tides just back and forth across the, you know, this land bridge between Asia and Africa. So they're pinched. One, one Jewish history scholar, he describes Israel as being in a vice between all these empires. And they're there with nowhere to look but up. But the question is, is that what they're doing? This is meant maybe to be an impetus for their worship for their spiritual growth, for their dependence upon God. But is that what they did? Did they keep doing it? Or are they in a rut? They are. That's what we find. It it appears that they're in a rut. They're a full century. This is really important. They're a full century beyond the excitement of rebuilding the temple and reestablishing their worship, the daily repetition of their duties. You know, over the last century seems to have made things grow old and stale. The apparatus of worship is in place, but their attitude has changed dramatically. It's sort of a worrisome thing when the apparatus is there, but the attitude changes. Think about the ways that that can apply. The shine is worn off. They're cynical. They're going about their business. They're doing their thing, and it's a new, their new norm. So Malachi gives us a set of dialogues, right, between God and between the priests. And it's kind of a, a cycle or it's a pattern. Here's how this, this pattern works. God is going to confront them with, with, you know, some negligence or with a bad attitude. He overhears some of the things they're saying, and they question him, well, how? how? How could you say this? How could you charge us with this? You know, and they're kind of in, in full defensive teenager mode, which we're, 
we're, we can get in, whether we're teenagers or not, right? Like, like full-on defensive mode. And then God gives the evidence what they are doing or what they're saying. Sometimes even they're whispering to each other. And God's like, I hear this stuff, by the way. And then God points out, and there's a graciousness that comes through, out different ways that his greatness will be magnified, whether they see it or not, despite their failure, that, that his faithfulness will reign despite their unfaithfulness. So let me just give you a couple of quick examples from these chapters that lead up to our reading today. I think they're helpful. God says, you don't fear my name, you despise it. You don't fear my name, you despise it. How have we despised your name, though? By offering polluted food on the altar. How have we done that? And then God says, you find the worst animals. You find the blind ones and the lame ones, the ones you can do without, the sick ones, and then you offer those to me. And he says, you wouldn't even offer those to your governor, and yet you offer them to me. You despise me. What am I meant to think? And then he's overheard them saying, probably in the process of offering these things, what a weariness offering these sacrifices is. And he responds, I have a covenant of life and of peace with Levi, with the priesthood to which you belong. I established you. They were in awe of me. And kind of, what happened? They taught people to honor me. And he says, but you've caused many to stumble by your instruction. And Malachi then points out, you cry over the altar. You're weeping and you're groaning when God won't accept your sacrifices or bless you. And they protest, well, why won't he accept them? It's kind of obvious by this point, right? Why won't he accept them? You know, and I say this often, and I'll remind you again as we're imagining them weeping and moaning while they're at the same time offering these weak sacrifices. It's not that people are insincere when they're wrong. They're just sincerely wrong. And their sincerity, this is so important, even their tears, their authenticity enhance the appeal of the wrongness. They're not, as I say, like, you know, if you were a Simpsons fan, like Mr. Burns, you know, we're going to ruin everyone. Right? No. Sincerity. God's answer reveals that their drift is actually evident everywhere. He goes, by the way, not just at the temple, at home. You've been faithless to your wives. Malachi points out something really profound right here. And I just, it's a little aside, and it's, it, it's, this is part of what shapes the church's view of the nature of marriage. He says, did God not make a husband and wife one? Well, we know that. We say that in our, in our ceremony, right? In our liturgy. Then he says this. He says, did God not make a husband and wife one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Capital S, Spirit. Do we think of our marriages that way? That something of God himself by his Spirit is imparted to the unions that we have? Then he says, you're robbing me. And they say again, how have we robbed you? You're not giving the full tithe and offering that I asked for. You're mailing it in, you're giving, it's half-hearted, and it's compulsory. And what does he do? He, just, he gives them a way out. He says, just, just give the right thing, give generously, and, and you'll get out of this rut of scarcity and of selfishness. I will, he says, I will open the windows of heaven and bless you. I'm inviting you into my economy of abundance. Then he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. 
How have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Because they prosper. Where is the God of justice? You ever said that? You ever felt that in the middle of your circumstances? Or when it's unfair? I mean, sure, we've said it. They're cynical. They're just cynical. Where is the God of justice after all? And here's God's answer in chapter 3. I want to just read this. To their, it's an understandable complaint. Where is the God of justice? This is the prophecy, y'all, that is ultimately fulfilled in John the Baptist and in the coming of Jesus. Listen to it, and you will probably recognize it. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Do you hear Jesus' words in that? And who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And then I will draw near to you. In judgment, I will be a swift witness, though, against the ones that they're complaining about, against the sorcerers and the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages and who oppress the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. I will bring justice. This is a prophecy of the ministry of Jesus with John the Baptist preparing the way and Jesus' justice will come and they will endure it through him and him alone through repentance and through faith. Jesus will refine them. How? With the fire of the Spirit. It won't be the work that we can do to get ourselves right or even get ourselves out of the rut, but it will be simply yielding to the Spirit and we will be a new priesthood emerging first with the apostles and then the church. And it's not less than that. And so we get to our reading today and we overhear them verbalizing. You know, this is in chapter 3, verse 14. They're verbalizing what, we, what just distills out to just bald cynicism. Why they've settled into this half-heartedness and into this rut of worship. God has overheard them. He says, you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Why are we doing this anyway? They just don't see any real difference between themselves and everyone else. The godless don't seem to need God to get along. Their lives are going great, it would seem. We were pursuing obedience in our worship and righteousness in our relationships, but to what end? These evildoers, they test God, they get away with it. It seems like that's the way of the world. What's the point of our humility? What's the point of our fervency if the arrogant seem to be blessed too? I wonder if you can hear yourself in that at all. I hear myself in that. So, can we hear ourselves in that? What's the point? Maybe we're not shaking our fists at God. But you could argue, I think, that the kind of fist shaking that we even see in the Psalms is preferable than simply offering God the cold shoulder or a murmuring complaint. Or whatever our version is of a blind, crippled offering. I think if we're honest, friends, our own hearts can tend to echo these same sentiments 21 centuries into Jesus' call to what? 
the long haul. Patient endurance. To holiness. To taking up our crosses. We say it's too heavy. Can't we just follow on our own terms? What's the real distinction anyway? This religion or that? What, is it, what does it even matter? These ethics or those? What do they matter? Why are we giving our lives? Why are we giving our bodies? Why are we giving our resources to this thing? When all around us, people doing whatever they seem, they, they, they want to do, they seem to be as happy as we are, maybe more. Maybe they're more blessed than we are. What's the big deal? It's just too hard. And so our ruts emerge. And they're dug by this kind of refrain. It's a Christianity that just kind of smacks of a kind of nihilism. If not meaningless, powerless. We go through the ceremony of it all. We're good at that. We retain the parts that make sense to us, the ones that lighten the cross. But the urgency and the fervency, are they really that important? And now I know we might want to say, hey, we don't want to be, we don't want to come off like fundamentalists. And that's understandable. The question is, what do we want? What do we want? The question is, in focusing on what we don't want to be, are we listening to who Jesus is saying we really are? To what he wants for us and what he still wants to do through us? as a renewed priesthood for the world, for the sake of the world, for the life of the world. Malachi tells us in 3.16 that some of them were ready to do something about it. They came together in recognition, and they spoke with one another, and what, what, what came out of that was this communal resolve to write their names in a book of remembrance. To even Maybe it's a book of accountability to say, yes, we committed to this again. Verse 17 of the prophecy, it echoes with Jesus. It says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. We're meant to see Jesus, the only son. A man spares his son who serves him. The word spare is hamal. And it's actually, you know, spare really isn't, it doesn't really get at it entirely. It might sound like he just lets him off, but actually that word is filled with compassion. It's, it's a word that's synonymous in places for pitied. He pitied him. I think it's better translated, he saves his son who serves him. It's a foreshadowing of the atonement of Christ saved from death to save us from death, of Christ's triumph over sin to save us from sin. He is the Son who is faithful all the way to the cross, enduring its shame to make us the Father's treasured possession. This is the turn for us. At this moment in the church calendars, we're coming to the end. Next week is Christ the King, and it's sort of its own thing, but we're moving toward Advent. Why do we keep telling the story and living the story this way? It's this return that we're making together as we move to this season, acknowledging that we might just be in some ruts. We might be captive to the next wave of individualism and how it's captured us, of moralism or of capitalism or just plain cynical familiarity. And our imagination's just too captive to see that our ruts have become our new normal. I don't know about you, I have ruts. 
I'm somebody whose full-time job is ministry. And the ruts abound. They're everywhere. Mailing it in is always an option. The truth is we're always either living a life of repentance or either we're dabbling with the potential for ruts, even religious ones. And those are the scary ones often. As we embark, friends, on on Advent in two weeks, we are going to revisit this part of the story where Israel has waited. From this point that we're reading, they've waited another 400 years without a prophet, without so much as God even showing up to say, hey, I hear you and I see you. Because Malachi was the last prophet. And we turn the page and there's Matthew. And what happens? We find out that Jesus comes into an atmosphere where the Pharisees have fallen into a rut of moralistic ceremonialism. If they could keep the law perfectly, maybe the Lord will return to His temple. Other options. The Essenes, they escape to the desert and into the rut of asceticism. Maybe if we can just work hard enough and deny ourselves enough and devote ourselves to prayer and Scripture, the Lord will return to His temple. We'll do it. And the Sadducees, they settle into the rut of cultural capitulation. Maybe if we can cozy up to Hellenistic culture and to politics, things will just go better for us, for God's people. Whether or not the Lord returns to His temple, that's even a thing anymore they might say and then what happens a child is born in Bethlehem a messenger was sent ahead of him to prepare the way and the Lord did come suddenly to his temple and they didn't see it and he's holding out to them a new promise and a new covenant and so many of them settled what they already had. Let me just close with this. I heard someone say, the chains of our habits are too light to be felt until they're too heavy to be broken. The chains of our habits are too light to be felt until they're too heavy to be broken. It's pretty wise. It's, it's interesting. But you know what? It's not a maxim. It's not universal, not for us, because in Jesus, the chains of our habits are never too heavy to be broken. The walls of our ruts are never too high to escape. Do you believe that? That's the main thing I want to say to you today. The promise of Jesus is still one of liberation and of lifting. His call to us for repentance, it still leads out of the grave of our ruts. It still leads to abundant life. So I just want to encourage us all today as we sort of turn the page in the story that we live, the story of Jesus into which we're invited. As we move toward Advent, let's just ask the Lord to help us to be newly open and newly honest before Him. Advent is a great time to make a turn. Today is too. And trust me, ruts are everywhere. They are. We need each other, and we need to know that God is faithful to help, he's faithful to heal, and he's faithful to save. And that's the call, and it always will be. And I pray that you hear it today, and I pray that you believe it today. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that um, it is very difficult to hold the course, and the ruts are everywhere. 
And very often it's easier to just begin mailing it in than to walk away. But Lord, find us where we are. That's what you're so good at, good shepherd. Find us where we are and lead us. Lead us where you want us to go. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.